can do whatever we want. We go, well, that's a great idea. Let's... So I wrote, I wrote a prayer, a couple of, spent a, a bit of time crafting this prayer for, for Polair and for the naming of the Bread A Fort. Afterwards, he says to me, he says, um, where'd you get that from? That, I said, what? What, what? what are you talking about? He said, that prayer, where'd you get that from? He said, I've never seen a prayer like that before. Never heard one like that. I said, oh, well, it's just something I've just asked God what he'd say to you guys as Polair and banged it out and here it is. He said, can we get a copy of that? Because we need that on our wall. And I think to myself, amazing. So I talked to a few of the pilots and the tacticians and all the police people around it. And I think to myself, in a complete random sense of point of view, we all have opportunities where we can just represent the Lord well. In that sense, it was just in the naming of a helicopter, but it affected a whole unit. So we'll do another ceremony with those guys down in Brisbane in the weeks to come. But the topic of renewed work has significance for us as a Christian. It's a very spiritual term. It basically means how can we bring Jesus to our workplaces? And the reason we can bring about renewed work or the reason we can even discuss the topic of renewed work as Christians is because we've been renewed ourselves. And the reason that we've been renewed ourselves is because of the redemptive act of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the effect of that sees us healed from our past in the forgiveness of sins, sees us living in the present in the reality of trying to be more and more like Jesus and sees us living in the future, looking to the future, going, God, one day we want to be with you, but in the journey to that space, help me represent you really well. And I want to suggest to us the same principles that happen in each of our lives, we can transition to our workspaces. God, what's going on? You know, have you ever been in a workspace where it's all just hitting the fan? or heading south in a capital way and you go, I don't know what's going on here. And it just gets really difficult and really hard. Can I encourage you, invite the same practice of redemptive or the same process of redemption to your workspace, God? What's going on here? God, what's not of you that should be of you here? Engage in a time of confession and then engage in a, at a time of, of prayer. Um, use whatever language you want there. God, what, what do you want in this place instead? And then engage, I think, in a process of, God, what's your preferred future for this workspace? I could tell you the teachers, I could talk to you about truck drivers, I could talk to you about policemen, I could talk to you about farmers who all engage in that and they bring renewal to their work simply because they're a Christian and they apply the principles of God in an everyday practical language, not in a weird way but just as normal, to their workspace. And while I don't believe God sends us, what, no, hang on, how, how would I describe this to you? While I don't believe God sends difficulties to us, because I think that's the opposite of what a good father actually does, God does allow us to be in difficult situations to renew them. Do, do you understand the difference in that? So sometimes we're, we're in really challenging spots and it's like, oh, Lord, really? What's going on here? And... and it, and from my experience, there's times when you go, well, okay, I know what's going on here. You can do 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 and you do this, this and that, and this, this and this, that happens as a result. And there's other times where you just have to stand there in the Lord and you will never know this side of eternity, God, why am I in this situation? But the great challenge for us is just to be lights for Jesus, to keep our eyes on God as bigger than the trial that we're in. That's important because nothing's bigger than God and we're in Him. 
And so as part of the family of God, we get to represent him well and sometimes the joys, sometimes the difficulties and sometimes the absolute trials of life. Can I encourage you, represent him well. One of the great places that we can stand in that and one of the great assurances we have in that journey is because when God, we, and it, it, I think the DVD is going to talk about it, in Romans chapter 8 it says that we're known as the sons of God or the sons and daughters of God. We're the children of God. He's your heavenly father. We talked about him this morning as Lord. We sung about him as God, prophet, priest and king. We sung about all those things. And God's all those. But to you and I most intimately, he's also Father. And we get to rest as we become Christians and adopted into a relationship where we become known as sons and daughters of God. We are the children of God. He is our Heavenly Father. Can I encourage you in the, in the process of renewing your work to rest safely, to rest securely, to rest often in the arms of your God? Because he's bigger than any trial that we face. Let's watch these DVDs. Thanks. Thanks, mate. No one needs to be convinced that work can be hard frustrating or filled with trouble. Maybe as we thought about how work is a struggle in the last session, it was the first time you yelled out, Amen, in public. Now you might think it's time to move beyond the trouble of work and discover how the gospel will enable your workplace to be free of frustration and conflict. Perhaps you want today's session to be a three-step plan to making sure you love your job. Or the five secrets to ending all relational conflict at work. Let me disappoint you now. There are only two ways to view life out of the garden. One is to believe that the frustration and toil of our workplace is somehow not the will of God. That his real intention is for you to never suffer, never face conflict, to always succeed. This view leads us to see the hardship of our work as impediments to a fulfilling life, things to be overcome or ignored. The trouble is, this is simply not realistic. We may solve some problems, but we will not be able to overcome all the tough realities of our working life. We may ignore other problems for a while, but if God's intention is for us to never face hardship at work, then he's clearly not succeeding. But what if there's another way of seeing things? What if the relational conflict you experience at work was actually sent by God? What if the ethical dilemmas you are facing are not obstructions to a better life, but the means to it? What if this season of unemployment you are experiencing is actually God-ordained, His will for you? What if the most frustrating aspect of your job is precisely why God has put you in that job at this moment in time to make you more like Jesus? Sometimes we miss a key element of the story the Bible tells. In Genesis 1 and 2, we were reminded of how God made this world very good and how work is a part of that very good creation. In Genesis 3, we saw how the fall ruined that good creation, introducing pain, trouble, and frustration in all of our life, especially at work. But what comes next? Redemption. 
Redemption is seen in a number of different ways in the Bible, as past, present, and future. In the past, Jesus has bought our redemption through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his exaltation as Lord over all. That is the finished work of Christ. In the present, by his Holy Spirit, and through the preaching of the gospel, God is redeeming men and women of every nation, race, and tribe. He is making people new in Christ to live in the world as his witnesses. That is the ongoing work of God in the world. But redemption is, as yet, incomplete. One day, when Jesus returns and the new age is ushered in, God's plan of salvation will be fully and finally revealed. That is the future work of Christ. And it is here that the Bible's storyline surprises us. For the ultimate redemption the Bible speaks of has a surprising element to it. And the text that best highlights this aspect of redemption that we often miss is in Romans 8. Let's take a moment now to read the text and think about some important questions it raises. Uh, Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the suffering of this is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Uh, following. Uh, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingness, not willingly but because of him who subjected, subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan without within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. For we were saved into this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. In difficulties and struggles, can I encourage us that we need to focus more on the Lord than on the trials that we're in? Otherwise, our trials become bigger than God. Think of it. My grandma used to have a set of old balance scales, you know, the, the weights. Ever seen those? If, you, if you're under my age, just Google image kitchen balance scales. You'll get the picture. But I used to love playing with those things. I used to get the biggest thing I could put in and get the biggest weight I could, and it was always... Anyway, it's about trying to find the balance. And I think what we have to learn in our, in our faith is God's always bigger than the trial. We need to take the time to position ourselves. Sometimes we get in trials, we get ourselves so isolated or feel so isolated, it's like, God, where in the world are you? Take that as when you find yourself in that space as his invitation to, for you to look for him. Don't just leave it as a statement, leave it as a question, God, where are you? And then start moving. God, where are you in this? Because I want to be right where you are. 
because you're bigger than this and you've got me on a journey. Help me in my, in my, in my thinking, in my body, in my spirit to align with you in that way. That's how, as last week, we looked at it in James chapter 1, we can come to a space where in trials we can count, count it as joy because God's bigger. And it's how, like in Romans chapter 5, as we'll see in this um, DVD, that we can learn to persevere even in hardship because God, can I remind you, is bigger than anything we face. Thanks, Dean. Let's watch this. Romans 8 is God's answer to Genesis 3. In this crucial passage, we see that God is renewing both people and creation. Was that a surprise to you? Through our sin, we have ruined both ourselves and creation. Cursed is the ground because of you, God said to Adam in Genesis 3. Therefore, the redemption in Romans 8 is about both humanity and the world we were called to steward. Let's think about each of them in turn. First, God is renewing people in Christ. This should be more familiar to us. The good news of the gospel is that rebels and sinners can now be adopted as children of God. Genesis 3 showed us in the last session that we are all contributors to the brokenness of our workplaces because we are all sinners. But Romans 8 makes it clear that the fall is not the final word. Instead, God redeems those who call on him in faith by filling them with the Holy Spirit and by welcoming them as his own children. That is, everything that is the Father's will be ours. That is our inheritance. We who abandon God will be adopted by that same God and given the privileges of a firstborn son because we are all in Christ, the firstborn over all creation. This good news, however, is linked to something surprising. For the sons of God, those who are in Christ, those who have been given the Holy Spirit, this world will often be a place of suffering. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And don't miss what Paul says right in the middle of verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Suffering, groaning, eager waiting. Paul tells us that this life and broken creation will be marked by human frailty and will be a place of suffering. One place this will certainly display itself is in your workplace. But the good news is that suffering does not have the last word. Everyone who is redeemed by Jesus is destined for glory. Romans 8 makes it clear that suffering and glory go together. Suffering, pain, and hardship in our work is a part of the process God uses to renew us into glory. The relational conflict, the ethical difficulties, the brokenness of our workplace are not because God has lost control of his fallen world. Rather, these things are all included in his sovereign plan to renew you, to reshape you and refocus your hope. Like our Lord and Master, the pathway to glory is through suffering. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther once said, God's complete work is set in motion through vocation. Luther's point was that our work is not an impediment to our spiritual growth, but is vital to it. However, there is a danger here. Work can either reshape us into the image of Christ 
or it can lead us into greater sin. Think of this example. Imagine you work in the customer service call center. It's easy to make the connection with Christian vocation. As people call in with a problem with their insurance policy, computer, or tax return, you are helping them solve and remove a difficulty in their life. You are directly obeying Christ's command to love your neighbor. However, this particular kind of work can lead in two different directions. You can easily become cynical toward your neighbor because we can be self-centered, rude, and disrespectful. Call center workers, waiters, shop workers, and bus drivers constantly face the worst of what humanity has to offer. We can become disrespectful and bitter towards the people we serve. Now, on the other hand, it can lead to a deeper love of your neighbor, even toward the worst customers. We can allow the gospel to reshape us to be more like Jesus, who wept for the blind, the lost, those whose rudeness springs from their own fallenness. We can be reshaped into the image of the one who died for those who disdained him, those who mocked him while he was on the cross. This means as Christians, we have a choice. We can view our work along with the rest of the fallen world as either a burden or an idol, or we can see it through the lens of God's work in the world. Christians will see hardship and frustration in the workplace as one of the ways God is renewing and reshaping us into his image. Secondly, work can refocus our hope. Paul is writing partially to encourage his Roman hearers to endure suffering and hardship. He points them to the hope they have in the gospel of their adoption as sons. However, he also reminds them that the road to glory will inevitably include suffering. In fact, early in Romans, Paul argues that suffering produces hope. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Follow the progression in these verses. Suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. Paul does not explicitly speak about the suffering and frustration of our workplaces, yet we cannot miss the pattern. If we think suffering is bad and not from God, we will run away from it or grow bitter in it. But when we see it as coming from God's good hand, it can work in us to produce the priceless commodities of endurance, character, and hope. But this raises a question. Why do our hopes need refocusing in the first place? What do we put our hopes in? Or to put it another way, what are we aiming for in our lives? Genesis 3 says that we have placed our hopes in ourselves. We have ceased hoping in God. Instead, we seek meaning and purpose outside of Him and try to find value and purpose in the things he created. We now put our hope in how much money we make or what material things we can accumulate. We hope in how far we can advance in our career and in our job titles. We set our hopes in romantic relationships or by seeking meaning from what others say about us. We hope that our children will turn out well, that their accomplishments will give meaning in our life. Because of the fall, we look for our value in all the wrong places, and we put our hope in the wrong things to get us there. 
But are you open to the possibility that God is seeking to use the frustrations and pain of your daily work to refocus our hopes around him? I'd like to read this to you out of it's in the book that um, the home groups, life groups are doing. It's on page 75. Whenever your work is in obedience to God, you're in service. You are in service of others. You're not doing it alone because God is at work in all, in and through all that you do. doesn't matter whether you're in your call centre or working in the police or working in, at home or on the sporting field or in your own workplaces. Our life has a fragrance. You represent God just by being a Christian. I, um, in a previous life, used to work on a dairy farm. I worked on a few dairy farms and one of them was a, a feedlot dairy and it was a bit run down when I, we started. We took over the management of it and um, one of the things we decided to do was clean out all the, all the pens where the cows did their business. Anyway, didn't quite realise how bad of or how smelly it was so we, we dumped it all up in a paddock about a kilometre from a town where I was in. And what we didn't quite understand was that the fragrance of the truck, the tons, the tons and tons, the truckloads and truckloads of stuff that we were dumping about a K from this town was um, directly in line of the, the southwesterly wind that was blowing over our stockpile of the cow's business and polluting the town with this fragrance that they weren't none too appreciative of. To the point that they rang the police and said, I don't know who's doing it. Apparently, the whole, like a lot of this town rang the police they got sick of the phone call, so they came and paid us a visit. They said, guys, what are you doing? Because you've got the whole town complaining about whatever you're doing. And we told them, they go, yeah, probably we should wait for a wind change, gentlemen. Yeah, smart idea, sir. So we waited. And we were just going about our everyday business, but the fragrance of what we were doing was affecting a whole community. <laughs> oh, I still laugh. I impacted a whole town. Um, uh, just in an everyday life, your fragrance of your life, you can pick someone who's got a raging ball of fire, you can pick someone who's in the cubicle beside you and you know when to talk to them and when not to. Why? Because just the fragrance of what they're doing just radiates out of them. You know, you can pick the person at the survey counter who's having a, a bad day or having a good day. You, you, know, you, know, you know what's going on. Like, I'm male... So there's 50% here, say, female. You guys get it a lot stronger than I do. You understand what I say when I'm male. The rest of you males are going, what's wrong with you, Jeff? Yeah. Well, a bit slower than the, the other half of the, of the species, but we all, we all have a fragrance. A little while ago, I was um, in the police station. I can't tell you about the police stories, but I can tell you those around it. And um, there was a guy who was released from the watch house and he asked to see the padre. I sat with him out on the front of the police station and he's just telling me some stuff and working through some stuff. And just got to be Jesus to him again. This, this, this guy had a faith 
life had challenged him and somehow his troubles had got bigger than the God that he remembered. And I didn't say much to him that day, but I just released the fragrance of God to him in how we talk. You, un- you don't understand how countercultural that is because it just happened to happen at two o'clock on the, on the say, a Friday, which is change of shift in the police. So everybody who's in the station, coppers are walking out and all the new shift are walking in and they're all looking at me going, like, what are you doing talking to him? As one sergeant said to me after, Jeff, do you remember, do you, do you realise you're here for us, not for them? And I, and I said, well, actually, no, no, I'm here for all humanity. It's my job. And they're like, no, that's really good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, she's a good lady. But we get to release, just by living as Christians, the fragrance as we live in obedience to God, be it peace, be it joy, be it love, be it justice, be it truth. Do you, did you see that verse that came up at the beginning of the service, Exodus 34, verse 6? I don't know if you know Exodus 34, verse 6, the story around it, but Moses was having a really bad day. That's when he took the first lot of Ten Commandments down, saw the golden calf. Let's just say it all hit the fan. God says, I want you to dig out, cut out your own set of stones, come back up to me, and then we'll start the process all over again. Moses trudges back up Sinai, does it all again. Before they start the process, God releases his fragrance, his heart to Moses in Exodus 34 verse 6, and he says these words. As the Lord passed before Moses, he proclaimed, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. God just released who he was. As you renew your work, as we look at this final DVD, can I encourage you, just release who God is in you and what he's given you. Thanks, Dean. Romans 8 is very clear that God is not just in the business of renewing broken individuals. He is also renewing creation itself. This should not surprise us. As nature shared in our original curse, so it shall share in our coming glory. Listen to the way Paul describes the creation in this passage. It is subjected to futility. It is held captive in bondage to corruption. And it is groaning for release. Creation is locked in a cycle of death and decay instead of what it was intended for, growth and order and fruitful flourishing. That is the mission God gave Adam and Eve in the garden, to fill the world with worshipers, cultivating, expanding the garden, and filling the earth. That is what creation is waiting for, and according to Romans 8, what God is going to accomplish. There is a day coming when God will release the frustrated hopes of his creation. It will flourish as he always intended it to. So what about some Bible texts that suggest that a day is coming when God will simply destroy the earth? What about 2 Peter 3.10, which says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. How can God be renewing the earth and also burn and dissolve the earth? How do we reconcile these two texts which seem to say the opposite thing? Here is a suggestion. In the Bible, fire can refer to purification and healing instead of annihilation and destruction. I would argue that Peter does not see a complete break between old and new creation. Peter's point is that the present earth will be purified from the curse on creation that began in Genesis 3. A better way to understand 2 Peter 3 and Romans 8 is to think not about destruction and remaking, but that the dawn of the new age will bring about a complete renewal, a radical healing, a dramatic purification of all creation. This understanding of our destiny has two important implications for your work now. First, whatever you do, your work is done alongside and with God. Psalm 104 describes God as a worker still, not just at the beginning. He is at work moment by moment in the world. He is present and caring for his creation. The Spirit of God both renews people and is also at work renewing creation. It says, when you send forth your spirit, you renew the face of the ground. The Lord Jesus said, my Father is always at his work. The point is this, whenever your work is in obedience to God and in the service of others, you are not doing it alone because God is at work in and through all that you do. If you are a farmer, God is sending rain and the seasons to enable the harvest for your crop. If you work in construction, God has given you a solid foundation from which to both build on and build from. If you are a chef, God renews the face of the ground for a harvest to produce good food and good drink for you to bring joy to others. If your primary work is with animals, your care of them mirrors God's care of the whole of his creation. If you are an administrator, you work alongside a God who is a God of order, who makes plans and executes them efficiently. Above all, God gives you life and energy and abilities each day for you to work, earn, bless, and contribute to the life of our world. When you go to work, you do not go alone. Secondly, all good work has lasting value. For many in the church, there is an assumption that only pastors and missionaries have important jobs because only their jobs have eternal significance. Pastors are about saving souls, and that's all that matters. Some have referred to this as lifeboat theology. If the whole world is sinking and being destroyed, the only tasks we humans should be focused on is getting people onto lifeboats, ensuring that they are saved. While certainly the most important role of any Christian is seeing lost people restored to the living God through Christ, Romans 8 is suggesting that evangelism is not the only work with eternal value. All good work has lasting value, for God is not simply going to destroy this world and all the contributions we have made to it, but he will finally redeem, heal, and restore it to a place of honesty, joy, and peace-filled shalom. So any work that contributes toward greater honesty, joy, and peace points to this coming new creation. The work of a journalist who uncovers and reveals truth is doing work of lasting value since God will one day renew this creation into one full of truth. The work of an artist who creates works of beauty is doing a work of lasting value for God will renew this creation into one of perfect beauty. 
The work of a chef or a waiter in preparing and serving food has lasting value because one day this creation will itself be one of perfect joy and celebration. Precisely how God will do this is a mystery. But one day we will stand amazed at the brilliant perfection God has fashioned from frustrated and imperfect pieces of this broken world. This hope should infuse our work with new meaning. For all work that creates beauty, corrects injustice, creates peace, or leads to the flourishing of humanity is work that will be sustained in a renewed creation on the day when the vision of Romans 8 ceases to be a future hope and becomes our eternal reality. This passage, then, is both hard news and good news. It is hard because we are reminded that those whom God redeems will suffer. Even the saving work of Christ does not remove the painful toil of work in this life. But that is not the last word. For through our painful toil, God is at work, both renewing us and His creation. God will use our suffering to conform us to the image of His Son, and He will one day take all our hard work and give it a lasting value we could never accomplish on our own. I hope we see that we're all, you see that we're all part of something so much bigger than ourselves. Individually, we do our own thing, but collectively, we make up the whole whole of what God calls us to do in this city, in our families, and as individuals representing Him. I'd like to lead us as we close um, today with these, um, with the Lord's Prayer. If you know it, please feel free to pray along with me. If not, just sit in a dignified manner. Let's pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Paul.